All right, Exodus 15. Uh, the first worship song, Song of Moses, Song of Salvation, Song of Redemption. There's like seven, eight, nine, ten different titles for this song, what they call it. But where we're at is about 400, 430 years of captivity is over. Uh, this is where the children of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt and their enemies were destroyed and they responded with a song of praise. The people have just witnessed God, Jehovah God and, it's, and his power. They, they, and they have followed him and they have chosen to serve and break out in song spontaneously. God took them to the Red Sea to demonstrate his power, to show his mighty power of deliverance. They were up against a place they had nowhere to go. Strategically, if you're moving, you know, two million people, the last place you want to be is up against the water like that. There's, there's, there was nowhere to go where they were at. You know, the map's in my head. You just see the, the, the cliffside and this huge beach. I mean, it's there. Go on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff on the Red Sea. But it was big enough for 2 million people, 3 million people to be there. But they were up against the water. They had nowhere to go but God. They have seen the power of God demonstrated in such a way that in the years to come, they would always look back at this miracle and be encouraged to go forward against any and all obstacles. I mean, Psalms are full of it. It's uh, Psalm 66, Psalm 78. Psalm 106, that all speaks of the Red Sea and what happened there. This was their day of their great deliverance. This was their moment of clarity. Emphasize on the word moment. They, the people of the Exodus, experienced God's, God's glory firsthand. And in that deliverance, they sing with great joy, passion, and devotion. And they honor him with worship and praise. We look at this song, the song of redemption, and learn important characteristics of true worship. And we also learn that trials are sure, and they help build our faith. Um, the deliverance of the Israelites and the defeat of the Egyptians is the reason for this song. Moses wrote this song, and he actually wrote two others in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 90. The mood of this song is triumphant. The song is a description of the power of God as Israel's defender, as evidence in the destruction of the mighty Egyptian army. And in the deliverance of Israel, by means of a miracle, the Red Sea being parted, the victory of God at the Red Sea is seen as a guarantee of the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel in the future, especially in the defeat of their enemies and ultimately the possession of the land, because that's where they're going, right? They're getting to the promised land. But, well, people, they'll get there eventually. <laughs> eventually, yes. <laughs> they'll get there. The structure of the chapter, chapter 15, is straightforward. Verses 1 through 21 contain the song, Verses 22 through 26 describe the incident at Mara, the thirst of the people, and the bitter water which they found there. 
And verse 27 records the arrival of the Israelites at a place called Elam, where there was water, an oasis, and peace. Water, water everywhere, and enough for them to drink. 15 begins with worship and what God did in his greatness. And then the worship of his greatness of what we'll do. And then the chapter closes with the trials that allows for our benefit. I like being redundant, okay? (laughs) The worship sings of what he has done for us all and should prepare us also for what's coming. Worship is rooted in a faith based on a relationship with the Father. They could worship because, I mean, they just saw the Red Sea parted. They just saw walls of water congeal like jello and walked right through. And then they saw it close up. Uh, they They were amazed. They were worshiping. By looking back in worship, we sing of times and places, of moments of God and his wonderful works. These worship songs tie a melody with a memory that create road markers or touchstones in our life of faith that remind us of his great love and awesome work in our lives. All of us here have worship songs. If you're born again and, and you've spent any time in church and, and you sang, you, you have songs that are special to you because God's ministering to you. And these are what I call, you know, for me, honeymoon songs, you know, touchstones, things you remember, things that take you back to that place. And, and they, they help carry us through. Worship can build our confidence that he is working directly in our lives. I mean, how many times do you read fear not in scripture? Hundreds, literally hundreds. I mean, we can argue about it, but it's over 100, 103 um, or so. God builds our confidence in him through worship. Worship is both vocal and physical. We sing, we raise our hands, and in raising our hands, it can be taken as a sign of welcome or also a sign of surrender, surrendering your lives. You close your eyes to worship. Worship can be a strong, heartfelt emotion that can lead to tears because the Holy Spirit is ministering. Worship, true worship, should put our lives in proper perspective in our relationship to the Father. What we do before each and every study, like you just finished, this corporate anthem worship prepares us to receive from the Father. Ideally, your heart's in line. You're, you're open to receive. Worship takes on many forms. We can obey the Lord, and it's an act of worship. We can meditate on the Lord, and we can believe on the Lord. We can give unto and upon the Lord, and it's an act of worship. Tapping your finger with a proper heart and mind in reverence can be an act of worship. Remember the woman who gave her two mites? She gave all she had. That two mites in Luke chapter 21, that was an act of worship. Her heart was pure before the Lord. Worship is quite simply expressing reverence, love, and confidence in our God. Praise the Lord. This is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. 
Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of a trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with his timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. I don't know about that. But praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God uses music. Music can move us. It can touch us. Music can lead to reverence. Music can lead us to battle in war. We, as humankind, are sensitive to music. It, it touches us in ways other things don't. And worship music can get us to be in tune with his voice. God made us this way. Luther said music is an aid to worship. In fact, he said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. And that next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world, Martin Luther. And you can see here in chapter 15, you know, this is thousands of years later, and that act, you know, that miracle is still debated and talked about throughout the world. You know, faith is built upon what happened that day. Worship is personal. It is a response. It is focused. It's exclusive to the Lord alone. It is a personal response of faith. It is a relational issue. It drives faith based on God past working in our lives. It's vocal, it's physical, it's musical, it's lyrical, it's emotional and participatory. There was nothing like it when this room with all these guys in here are just singing loud. I hear you guys down the hall, you know, ladies too. That heart, that that heart of one accord in praise to the Lord, it's just, it's just unabashed and unashamed in your expression toward the Lord, singing to the God of heaven and earth, our Savior, our Redeemer, the restorer of our lives. You know, we've all been forgiven. Those of us who are saved tonight, we've been forgiven, and we know what our relationship, what our life was before God. And you know the depths of the wretched man that you were. I know the wretched man that I was and still am and still have the capability of being. And I so love the Lord for his grace and his mercy, and worship is a way to express that. God is forever reconciling his people to himself that we may worship him and know him intimately. This life, our lives, can be an act of worship to the King of Kings, and to the Lord of hosts. Psalm 59 reads, uh, verse 16 and 17, But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Uh, the, The author there is just expressing what we all go through. In this chapter, we find an 80-plus-year Moses leading an, an army of 2 to 3 million refugees, immigrants, fleeing the oppression of the hardened-hearted Pharaoh. 
They have just witnessed the hand of God perform the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, I went to YouTube, and it's amazing how many guys have done all this research about how you can... We were talking about last week, Don, uh, when you're finding chariot wheels at the bottom uh, of the water there. I mean, it speaks to it, it really happening, you know. They are elated. They are celebrating the deliverance provided by the Lord. They break out into song and to dance. Chapter 15 is the song of worship and praise of God's marvelous work. It's, it, it is quite literally a memory tied to a melody. You know, we weren't there, but, you know, they were singing. And it said spoke, too, so possibly rapping as well. So, you know... It is spoken word, you know, <laughs> we weren't there. <laughs> However, um, by the end of the chapter, in fact, just three days later, uh, these refugees seem to unremember God and his power and their complaining in the desert begins again. But God in his mercy and grace loves his people, even in their shortcomings he is worthy of our worship and praise. I personally love this chapter. It's it, For me, uh, it's a honeymoon song from the early days in Alhambra in my walk. We used to sing Exodus 15 uh, all the time. You know, John and Daryl Marini would play and, and lead worship in the, the small sanctuary on Thursday nights on, um, oh, the Seventh-day Adventist church. You know, as the youth chapel was small, not really much bigger than this, but everybody was in there and it was loud and it would just wash over you. I mean, the memory's thick. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I shall prepare him my heart and I shall prepare him my heart. The Lord, he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. You know, Years later, when we got to Pasadena, God in his grace allowed the worship team here to update the song, and it was even better, you know. I still have, you know, old recordings of it, and every time I hear that song, it puts me in that place where all I can do is submit my, my will to God. I mean, you know, God used Mike Hernandez mightily on that tune. I still hear that echo in my head, you know, times of worship in there. Uh, Brian Hutchings on his guitar, you know, Sam, and, oh, the Spaniard, the drummer, Frank, Frank yes, you know, who's, who's in Spain now. The people that the Lord has brought and moved along, but God, he, still, his word was there. True worship causes me to bow to him spiritually and to allow to see my relationship with him clearly. Clearly. In this chapter, the children of Israel have a moment of clarity. A moment of clarity can be described as a brief, a brief period of time where someone suddenly understands and deep acceptance of some truth that has been impossible for us to see. This is when acceptance takes place and we're only to see the reality of a situation and move toward the solution. It was lucidity. It was clear. They could see God for who he was. I know, at least in my life, when that moment came, August 16th, 1981, at 6 a.m. on Templeton Street, 
when God came down and entered in. I got it. I knew that I knew that I knew that God is. And that was it. It was changed forever. Yeah. But I, I need to emphasize, you know, in this chapter, <laughs> that the word brief applies. They're, they're, they're this moment before the complaining starts again, last three days. But God had a plan. God never fails in his unfailing love to us. In Isaiah 40, 30-31, we read, But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hold on to those. Cling to those. Run them through your head. Exodus 15 has been called the Song of the Sea, the Song of Moses, the first worship song, the Song of Redemption, the Song of Salvation. God demonstrates his power as Lord to defeat his oppressors. God in his mercy and grace loves his people no matter how often we whine. We are redeemed in his mercy and saved in his grace. Let's read the text. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has thrown, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Now I know where that horse got the name. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast to the sea. He's chosen captains also and drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemies in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood up like a heap. The depths congealed. I think of jello when I hear the word, you know, congealed. Those walls of water just there kind of wobbling in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, uh, uh, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people who you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Psalm 40 has a refrain similar to that. Sorrow will take hold on the inhabitants of Philistia and on the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them and all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. You know, it's speaking about future things to come. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, the people pass over whom you purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, 
in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown to the sea. Verse 22, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name was called Marah, which means bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statue and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where the twelve wells of water were and seventy palm trees, and so they camped by the waters. The first song acknowledges what the Lord has done for them. He has triumphed. Gloriously, he has thrown the horse and rider to the sea. Next, it acknowledges who, what the Lord is to them. He is our strength. They had no strength against the Egyptians. They were, they were in bondage. They didn't have weapons of war. They didn't have anything to fight them. Yet God in his power delivers them. How strong is the Lord? In Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, I am God. Is there anything too hard for me? Not a thing. We should never be guilty of measuring the problem that we face by our ability to handle or or, or deal with it on our own, but by His ability. You know, over the weekend, I'm at the fridge in the house. Imagine that. <laughs> and there, right there, uh, Doris had put a little, you know, those shot keys that you get, you know, when you travel, and a little magnet. And right there it was. Never tell God how worried about the size of the storm in your life is. Rather, inform the storm just how big and powerful your God is. Our faith and trust is in the creator of the universe. And that's where our power comes from. It's nothing we do. We need to go to God daily. There's an old hymn that says, When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no measure his grace has no limits. His power has no boundaries known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. It was, it's called, he giveth more grace. I thought it was appropriate by a lady named Anne Flint. You know, it's basically James 4, 6. He is my song. When, when 
when he becomes the theme of basically our lives and our music now changes where we're where we're consuming worship music drawing closer to the lord it it's 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 that constant awareness of god that draws us closer there was a um a prolific gospel songwriter back in the day who was named John Peterson and he was called by a major you know music publishing company who was interested in a song that he had written and they offered him you know a boatload of cash with uh, the provision that he alter the song slightly just slightly just a word or two just take Jesus out of the lyrics but we'll give you all this money. He refused. He refused the contract. And on his way home, he wrote, Why should I sing of lesser things, of things that pass away, when I have a friend like Jesus now to sing about each day? I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. To him my praise I'll bring forevermore, his love beyond degree, his grace that ransomed me. Now and eternally, I'll sing it o'er. I'll find no more delight in other songs. My melody of love to Christ belongs. I have no song to sing, but that of Christ my King. To him my praise I'll bring forevermore. You know, I was talking to Harold Moore one, uh, one morning before service. And we, we have brothers who, you know, who uh, in their past lives played with some you know big time music guys, big time players, um, and um, Harold, I remember expressing very just heartfelt. He goes, "You know what? As great as those guys were, as as great as that music sounded, and as great as everything seemed like at the time when we're playing, it doesn't compare to the worship of the King of Kings." And it's true. You know, it's out there in the world. It's just now. It's just temporal. It's trite, actually, in comparison. What can you can What can you sing of that is greater than God? Nothing. You know, I think of the worship song by Mercy Me, Word of God Speak. That's powerful. That's a powerful tune. You know, and you know, if you ever get a chance to see uh, those guys. Bart, he's got a set of pipes, man. And when he sings that song, you're just, I mean, you're blown away, but you're worshiping the Lord, and it's, it's, it's just awesome. He has become my salvation. He has just saved them from the destruction of Pharaoh. He is, for us, actually, this is even more meaningful because, you know, he has saved us from eternal destruction. He is my God. Here's one truth. In this life, everybody has a God, whether you like it or not in this world, Christian, non-Christian, otherwise, you have a God. God is not a name, but a title for the master passion of your life, whatever that is. What controls you? What have you surrendered your time to? Those are your gods. That's what you are serving. If you are serving the Lord God of heaven, then you will be consumed by his word and serving him. Otherwise, you are serving uh, a man-made God. David said, the heathen now say, where is your God? David responded, 
Our God is in the heavens, and he has done what he is pleased, but their gods are made of silver and gold, the works of man's hands. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. Ears they have, but they cannot hear. Many people today do not believe that God made man, but that the that that God made man. But these same people have man-made gods. You know, I think about. Um, all right, there's no. I think about a Raider fan. A Raider fan is pa- Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Raider fans are passionate. <laughs> I'm using them as an example because they are just passionate about that football team. And I remember Steve French telling me about, he was on this job site once, and um, he was surrounded by Raider fans. And he made an off comment saying, oh, yeah, 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 they lost yesterday. Ha, 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 ha. They all got quiet. And they all looked at him. There's like 10 guys. Hey, hey, shut up. And they were just like, I just make a conversation. But it's their master passion. And it's their little God. Yeah. What do you live for? What's controlling your passion? What's controlling your life? What is your big dream in life? What is it that's driving you every day? When you find that, then you find who your God is. There is only one true God who is overall and the creator and the sustainer of this universe. The song was sung corporately as an expression of praise and thanksgiving. The song, in the song, the acts of God is viewed as evidence of his nature and his character. The defeat of the Egyptian is described in poetic imagery. God's deliverance is viewed in the light of the character of God, which is demonstrated in his deliverance. God came through like he said he would. Just a chapter before, Moses stood up and said, See the salvation of the Lord. God came through. God is clutch. (laughs) You know, when you're clutching baseball, when you're clutching football, when you're clutching any of you guys who play sports, you'd rather have somebody who's clutch, you know, because they come through. God comes through. When natural forces are used... They are seen as miraculous. God uses these natural forces to make everything happen, and they're seen as miraculous events. But brought about by direct intervention of God. God hurled the Egyptians into the seas, and they sank to the depths like a stone. The winds are described as coming from the nostrils of God. The waters congealed. They piled up like oil, like I said, like jello. You know, there's... um. I think it's the Disney one, Prince of Egypt, where uh, the cartoon uh, where they have uh, when the the Red Sea's parted and you see like the lightning flashes and you see the blue whales happening. You know, God just made it very natural. I mean, and I mean, he could do that, you know. God's sovereignty is evidenced by his control over the forces of nature, the winds and the water. And his ability as creator to cause nature to act unnaturally, you know, to make water pile up as a wall. In verses 9 and 10, God's sovereignty is seen as his, in his, ability to, his ability to prevail as a mighty warrior 
over the Egyptians, the mightiest army on the face of the earth, and he wipes them out. Uh, nobody fired a shot. There was no arrows. There was, it was just God. And still, they arrogantly pursued the Israelites, confident of victory. And in spite of their power and their confidence, God simply just blew them away, quite literally blew them away, causing them to sink like lead. The greatest army on the face of the earth was no problem for the God of Israel to dispose of. God dominated that day. Verses 11 and 12 summarize the implications of the mighty acts of God at the Red Sea, focusing focusing upon God's nature and character. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The greatness and the goodness of God are thus recognized by the Israelites as they reflect upon God's victory over their enemies, over the Egyptians. You know, before his return to Egypt, God told Moses that Pharaoh would not release the Israelites until he compelled them with a mighty hand revealed by performing wonders among them. In Exodus three nineteen and 20, it says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders and do it in the midst. And after he will let you go. Now, after passing through the Red Sea, Israel praised God for his mighty hand. God revealed through Moses that he was about to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And now after the Exodus, Israel proclaims, Who among you is like you, O Lord? By the Exodus, God said that Israel would know that he was their Lord God and brought them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Thus, after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites sang, He is my God. That which God sought to accomplish in the, in the events of accidents he accomplished. That's, that's what these praises are, sing, are speaking to. But God delivered his people from a, a, an uncomfortable, tight, and painful spot. I mean, they were up against the water. And, and these, this is a wonderful picture of trials and and difficulties in our own lives. Trials reveal our character and our relationship with God. When the pressure's on, that's that's where the rubber meets the road, where you find out really, are, are you really walking? Or are you are you just playing? Are, is it real? Or are you just goofing? You know, are you pretending to be a Christian, or are you a Christian? Are you trusting, or is it just church? A lot of people go to church in this world. A lot of people talk to them all the time at work. They all, yeah, yeah, I go to church. It's all good. What'd you do last time? I was out clubbing. Oh, all right. Nice church. Oh, <laughs> yeah, never mind. Just one chapter back, the children of Israel complained. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than it would be that we should die in the wilderness. They didn't have faith. They lacked faith. Moses had faith. You know, he's the one who said, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. These difficult times, these tight places, remind us, really, that God 
is not on our schedule. He doesn't punch a clock. God uh, may not come when you want him to, but when he does, he's right on time. I, I remember that Roby Duke, you know, would often say that. Roby Duke used to lead worship years ago. And that's pressed upon me for a very, very long time. And in Job 35, 14, it says, Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. Be patient. God will deliver you from the tight places, from the pain in our lives. And, and those tight places and that pain, what it really does is it, it, it drives us to God. It, it fosters our dependence on God. He is not a servant. We belong to him. God opens and closes the Red Sea. He fixes the problem according to his timing. I'm sure they were freaked out and panicking because they saw the, the armies of Pharaoh coming. They also saw that you know big fire thing protecting them, but somehow they didn't see that. <laughs> they could let us drown. <laughs> anyway. You know, when those hardships in our lives come, you know, sometimes you're, you're left with all you have to do is look up. And, and that's a good place to be because that means you've hit bottom. That means you're going to finally yield, hopefully. Whether we like it or not, hardships and pain get your attention. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The remedy to this pain is self-surrender of the will, of your will to God, which in itself can be painful. Dying to one's own will day after day is the constant ongoing corrective that is required to break our rebellious sinfulness dying to ourself daily is the corrective medicine to break our rebellious nature when we are self-satisfied with our own soul we're not going to surrender to anything you're confident it's like it's all good that's why it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven he's got what he needs he's comfy you know, it's, he's not thinking about anything except what he's going to go spend his money on. You know, and I'm not saying that, again, you know, that it's bad to be rich or that rich people can't know the Lord. That's not it at all. But what it speaks to specifically is the self-satisfied soul. When you are relying in self, you're just fooling yourself. Sin, according to C.S. Lewis, is masked evil. Pain unmasks the evil and exposes the sin for what it is. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Again, it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, C.S. Lewis. And that's mostly taken out of the book, The Problem of Pain. But... God allows these hardships, these painful things in our lives, and it drives us toward him. It should anyway. It shouldn't drive you away. It should drive you toward God. 
when the pain comes, you got nowhere else to go but God. You know, there's a worship song we sing here. Uh, when Audrey and Roy used to come here, but we still sing it on occasion. It's called Rescue, and there's a refrain that says, Where else can I go? There's no other name by which I am saved. Capture me in grace, and I will follow you. God will meet us where we are in our pain and deliver us from our enemies. And our response should be worship. Later in chapter 15, in verse 22 to 26, we find the Israelites have been hiking in the desert for three days. And honestly, getting water in the desert for two to three million people is not an easy thing to do. Uh, but neither is parting the Red Sea, and neither is clouds and fiery things that follow you. But that's just details for God. Mara, which means bitterness, is a region in the desert get, that gets less than an inch or two of rain a year still to this day. Those two to three million people walking two or three days in a hot desert with no water, they can get a little, you know, edgy. I guess for lack of a better word. But these are the days, these difficult times, and, and it applies to us where we're learning how to trust God. You know, God is testing these people, even now, through these difficult times without water. This was their first test, basically Trials 101. One of the hardest truths that any young Christian must learn and accept is that life will not be easier now that you are saved. Because God uses our trials to mold and shape our godly character. Our trials turn to gold. Hopefully our character improves. The Bible teaches that in the world you will have tribulations, John 16.33. To most people who are new in the Lord, they, they think that your come-to-Jesus moment is um, pass-go to an easy life. Oh, I wish it were, but it's not. No, Margaret, the boat's going to get rocky. The storm is going to come. We are supposed to become more like him. These trials, these tight places, chip away at the stone of our hardened heart of the past life. But remember... The verse ends, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's how the verse ends in, in 1633. So no, it will not be easy, but our hope is in him. He is our deliverer. If we focus on him and put his word deep in our hearts, and it really needs to get to the root of our soul, you will eventually build up enough uh, trust, for lack of a better word, to um, to walk by faith and overcome these trials. The people of Israel are thirsty in this desert. They are learning obedience to God, trusting in him. And for most of those people there, they spend the next 38 to 40 years learning this truth. You know, most of them don't get in. In fact, all of them don't get in. That's the next generation. So without trials, how do you learn to walk by faith? It's easy to walk when everything's going well. The test of faith is when pressure is applied to your life. 
He's going to squeeze you because he loves you. It's in adversity where your character is developed. The test of your faith is continuance. A young man's character is built upon his pain. You think these people who just saw the ten plagues in Egypt, and they got a new Jewish holiday out of it too, you know, Passover. The Red Sea parted, you know, and Pharaoh and his army thwarted, dead in the sea, would have the faith, and heck, just the plain common sense that God is on their side and obtaining some bottles of sparklets or heroin shouldn't be too big a deal for the God who just parted the Red Sea. They were just singing and dancing three days ago. You know, they were having a party. And, but, but no, but the truth is, aren't we like that too? You know, I mean, we're going to be at this study. You're going to walk out to your car. You're going to get out in Colorado, make a left or right, wherever you're going to go, and somebody's going to cut you off. And what are you going to do? Backslide. <laughs> you're going to backslide, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or you get on the freeway, and then there's another person who, you know, for some reason you cut them off, and they drive by, and then they give you the, you know, one-finger salute. And all you can think about is, you know, your AK-47 or your AR-15 that will rectify this situation now. It's our flesh. It's our flesh. I mean, I'm coming home through Griffith Park tonight, and that's the shortcut through Barham to get back over to the 134. And I do that every day. Every day. We all do it every day. And everybody has to get close together. I had this lady in front of me slam on the brakes, and she starts yelling at me because I'm tailgating her. And I'm going, okay, Lord, all right, I'll chill. Just let it go. I said, yeah. <laughs> That's just the enemy. I, started, I actually just started laughing, and, you know, just I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, three days in the desert without water is tough, but God. But God just did the impossible for them. He did such a miracle that he got Charlton Heston to play Moses. <laughs> they witnessed a miracle. They were part of God's miraculous saving hand, just like you and me. You and I getting saved, it's a miracle. Everything we owe, we owe God everything. Nothing in this world, no riches, no possessions, no pleasures, no, nothing. It holds nothing for us. Moses is expressing deep thoughts and emotion in this song. He wrote this song. He sang it with the Israelites and, and, a, and apparently a couple other songs. And apparently this was very spontaneous as well. You know, we do that song... Um, Good, good father, right? Good, good father. That's a powerful, powerful worship song. I mean, that ministers to my heart. And I was talking to Pastor Ham, I mean Pastor Sam, about it. Yeah, that was funny. I totally did that on Sunday. I was, I was, cracked me up. Uh, we were talking about that song, and evidently it just was born out of an afterglow at some church back in Tennessee or something. And that's God moving, you know? God moves like that. 
Worship is a response. The people of Israel responded. They sang out. There was no singing in Egypt. They were just crying, groaning, and making bricks. Worship is a response directly to God. We love him because he first loved us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, 12.1. That's worship. Worship is a proper response to God that comes from the heart. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, John 4.23. Worship is the proper response to God that comes from the heart, whereby we place God above everyone and everything else. In Matthew 22, 37 and 38, Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. This is the first and great commandment. This is worship. Worship is focus. It's all about God. You know, the word Lord is used 12 times in this song. It's theocentric, God-centered. It's, it's not man-centered. And here's a very cool truth. Ask yourself, who is not mentioned in this song? Moses, that's right. Moses isn't mentioned. Could have been easy to elevate Moses and, and make him their demigod and, and say it was Moses who did this. But no, Moses knew salvation is from the Lord. He was merely the instrument of God that God used you know, we don't praise the instrument when you when you when you go have surgery. You know, <laughs> you don't talk to the scalpel. You're you're hopefully praying and talking to the surgeon. We you know we praise the Lord for His instrument. We actually thank God for the surgeon. The source is God. The source is the Lord. He is our salvation. The deliverance from Egypt was a major sign in Jewish history. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in the very thing that um, they have behaved proudly, he was above them in Exodus eighteen ten and 11. The word spread. God was in control. God had power. It says in Joshua 9, 9, the Lord, uh, so they said to him, from a far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God, for we have heard of his fame and what has he done in Egypt in Joshua 9, 9. We need to tell God how awesome he is every day. Worship is exclusive. Who is like you, Lord? There were so many false gods back in the day. Just like there's false gods now, it's all over the internet. God's everywhere. But nothing can compare to God. Nothing. With a big G. Jesus. <laughs> Again, worship is exclusive. Just like a, a husband and wife are exclusive. They're it's a singular devotion to the Lord. No substitutes. Not angels. Not Mary. 
not Joel Olstein, not Rick Warren. You know, it's God. Worship is relational. God is our redeemer. He buys back. Uh, those he buys back are the redeemed. God is Lord. He, he buys, who he buys back are his servants. Ownership is implied. When we come to Christ, we are saying we give you control. And then you spend the rest of the life trying to get it back. And that's not the thing to do. We are to die daily, to give him control daily. He is in charge. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have heard from God, and you are not your own? You are not your own. For we are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship is a happy experience. Whether you feel it or not, God is worthy. God is good. We worship a wonderful and glorious and happy God, according to Spurgeon. You know, the Bible teaches in 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without wrath and doubting. The position of our heart and our attitude is more important than the position of our body. So you can be out there standing, jumping around, raising your hands, falling on the floor, but if your heart isn't right, then you're just making a fool of yourself. Music. We already touched on that. God, through his wonderful works, the story of Israel's exodus, and this song are quoted throughout the Bible, throughout the Psalms, throughout the book of Isaiah and other prophets, the deliverance of Israel, from the bond of, of Egypt was likened to the deliverance from Israel and Judah and their Assyrian and Babylonian captives. Thus, either by a direct reference or an illusion, the exodus constantly draws upon as a symbol, as a source of hope for Israel's future deliverance. The exodus was in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament gospels a prototype of the greatest redemption of all. The redemption of men's souls and from bondage to sin which was accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In the book of Revelation, the deliverance of Israel is depicted as a song of the sea, as a typical or symbolic deliverance of the tribulation saints in Revelations 15, 1 through 4. Biblical history is not written to bore us with irrelevant details. It is written in order to provide our faith with historical roots, touchstones, milestones. These songs are real. They, these psalms, these songs we sing, they, they, they speak to events that happen. They, 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 they have historical roots. Israel's hope regarding the future was rooted in their experience in history. Through the plagues and the passing through the Red Sea, so too our future hope is based upon God's actions in the path, both in our lives, in our experience, for those who have lived and experienced the hand of God before us, from elders and people that you know. It makes me think of, you know, Pastor Warren Berwick, 
when I first got saved, I was going to this Pentecostal church, and Pastor Berwick was, uh, <laughs> he was the nicest old man, kind of like a brick, you know, just thick, and, you know, white hair, but a gentle soul. And his experiences, you know, helped cement my early faith. Because he spoke of when his granddaddy was preaching. His granddaddy who was preaching. And he goes, you know what, Mickey? I remember 1905. I go, in 1905, I was there and listening to my granddad preach. And you know what he was saying? I go, no. He goes, everybody thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. Because he was talking about this people and this place called Israel. And this is 1905. And he's standing up proclaiming. That Israel will become a nation. And he goes, you know what happened in 1948, Mickey? He goes, Israel became a nation. I saw the word of God come alive in my life. And I go, and I'm telling you today, Mickey, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Do you believe it? Powerful stuff. He saw it with his own eyes. You can share those experiences with younger generations. God's put them in your life so you can pour your life into others so the gospel can go out. That's why the song is here. So he, we can tell others of what he has done in our lives. <sighs> Speaking to the event at Mara in verses 23 to 26, the people complain again and Moses throws a tree into the breckish water. You can, in a hidden or, or veiled sense, see that the act of throwing the tree into the bitter waters to make them sweet is a visual of the cross. Jesus. We need Jesus to make life sweet. Jesus' life is the exchange for our bitterness that will lead to his oasis of life and peace. Verse 27 speaks of the living water that comes from obedience. Mara was a test for them. And did they fail? Miserably so. But God creates a statute for them and basically reads, live your life for me and you won't have to face the judgments of the old life you left behind. That old life of defiance, of and of hardened hearts. Listen and follow. God will meet you at your bitter waters and make them sweet. All of us, we have those things that we hold on to that drive us crazy because of <laughs> it's just the wretchedness that, that we can be. But God wants to take them from us and make them sweet. He wants to restore souls. He wants to just ease the madness and ease that sadness. He wants us to leave it at his feet. God ultimately prepared a pace for them, and that was his plan all along. From even before the Red Sea, he knew this was going to happen. They just didn't happen to go to the Red Sea. God led them there. He needed to show his power. God prepared a place for them. In verse 27, it says, Then they came to Elam, where the twelve wells of water were in the seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. That's sweet. 
And doesn't he promise that for us in all eternity? John 14, 1 through 4. Let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't. I, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you, you know. And the way you know. Pastor Berwick, 1905, hearing about Israel. Pastor Berwick, 1985, telling me about Jesus' return. It's real. It's going to happen. Guarantee it. God led them there. God delivered them. God made their waters sweet. Trials do not last forever. God will lead us all to that place of rest. So worship prepares us for service. It prepares us for battle. What worship is, is it, what worship is not, it's, worship is not entertainment. Trials will indeed come, but we have a hope and a written record in his word confirming his work in the lives of believers. Those sweet mountaintop experiences we have in the Lord, like when you go on a retreat and God is ministering, are real, and he blesses us with those. But ultimately, they are momentary and they are short. These mountaintop moments are great because they create these these touchstones, these mile markers in our in our in our in our walks. We worship to connect a memory with a melody that gives us the clarity to get up and continue our walk each and every day. Worship is our response to our Father in heaven that guides our every step and repeatedly delivers us from hardships to the sweet, sweet waters of his peace and rest. Evidence of true worship is a change and consistency of life with the Word of God. D.L. Moody said, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Walk the talk, basically. You know, live consistently. Obey, trust. There's those words again. Obey, trust. We worship with our lives. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. But most people never read the first four. That was a quote by a guy named Rodney Smith. He was a British evangelist in the 1800s. What Smith says is striking is that most people never read the first four. It begs the question, if the world will never read the first four Gospels, then what will they read? They read you. They read me. They read Pastor Ham. <laughs> they read the Christian. We worship him with our lives. So is that being said, can we worship with our, our lives? The answer is yes. But I'll leave with you Jeremiah thirty two twenty seven. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your Holy Spirit and your word. And, your, and, and just thank you for this chapter that just 
causes us to focus on you and your greatness and your power and your deliverance. We pray, Father, for Traveling Mercy's home. Bless the kids in the gym and the education building and the ladies, Father, this evening. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.